five, four, three, two, one, and you are live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Over the Rainbow Show with your host, Bob Brown, on Friday, the 7th of February at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 o'clock Pacific Time, and 8 p.m. UK Time. And to all the listeners from around the world, you can go to Beacon of Light Radio chat on Facebook, or you can sky me at Beacon of Light Radio, where we've got a fabulous guest today. Uh, they call him James Fox. James finished and sold his first documentary to Discovery by the, the time he was 28. He has since completed and distributed TV projects for Sci-Fi, TLC, National Geographic, and the History Channel. Can we please welcome James Fox to the show? Hello, James. Yeah, I don't know if I should say good evening or uh, good morning. <laughs> well, it's, it's still based in the States, the show is. Um, so uh, it's good evening to me and good morning to you. It, it is still, well, actually it's 12.01, so we, it, it's technically good afternoon. But yes, it feels well, like morning. Yeah, I can imagine it is. Um, for the listeners out there, can you just tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I I, um, I have been making documentaries uh, for about 26 years. I made my first film on the topic. Everyone thought I was out of my bloody mind. My father, who was a mainstream journalist, was pleading with me. British guy. I was born in England as well. And he was saying, son, you're wasting your life. There's nothing to it. It's all swamp gas. <laughs> and... Uh, of course, being the, the Taurus and, and tenacious guy, I think that probably propelled me across the finishing line more than anything else. And um, I guess I was just naive enough to think I could pull it off. And then, uh, you know, here we are uh, four, four films later, and uh, I, I, uh, I'm just wrapping up The Phenomenon, which um, is a global perspective on not just UFOs, but the potential intelligence behind the phenomenon, which is the first time I've breached that aspect of it. I think it's an interesting aspect as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the, your new film, what's come out? Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, I've, I'll back up just for a moment. I've been trying to create the seminal feature-length documentary film on the topic that could sort of transcend the UFO community and penetrate a much broader audience uh, since I started back in back in the 90s. Um, and I and I never quite met the mark. I, I fell short with uh, with 50 years of denial. I fell short again with Out of the Blue. I took another stab at it and spent two more years on Out of the Blue, which puts total production time at seven years. And then that fell short. I tried again with I Know What I Saw for a theatrical I got as close as one could get with a pending deal with Lionsgate, which would have had a global footprint in, dis in terms of distribution. Uh, but at the last minute, they took a pass because the film lacked, according to them, the uh, it wasn't quite up to up to standards with production values. And uh, and I thought, all right, right. Um, if I you know if I if I take another crack at it, I won't make the same mistakes I made in the past. 
So I really focused on the phenomenon, keeping those, all those lessons I've learned in the past in mind. Uh, if I couldn't afford to do it right, I waited until I could. Uh, really high production standards. I'm not sure if your listen, listeners are familiar with 60 Minutes or frontline documentaries in the States, but it's sort of high caliber journalism, really beautifully shot and edited. Yeah. And I was uh, setting the bar at that because I felt like the, the, the phenomenon hasn't been respectfully treated in the mainstream media as it should. Um, and so that was my goal. And my goal was to create the, the seminal documentary feature-length film that while covering familiar material, because one has to assume that the audience, if successful, wouldn't have much more knowledge than the average Joe in the street. But at the same time, I didn't want to bore the UFO community. So we got never-before-seen archival footage. We had uh, Jacques Vallée in the studio with us, helping us assemble the pieces of the puzzle uh, in a way that, according to him, has never been done properly. And uh, the end result is, uh, I, I think, one of my best pieces. Um, and I don't want to give myself sole credit because there were so many people who wanted to see to make this film what it is today. But, but um, yeah, that's it. It's called The Phenomenon. You know, same as anything else, James, it's a team event, isn't it? When everybody pulls together um, and makes a good film. It was an un, you know, that old expression, well, the stars aligned, you know, but they really did this time because right down from, you know, I ran, of course, I ran out of money about 25 times. That's, that's you know, begging and pleading, writing letters. I mean, that's, that happens every time. Um, and there was about a one and a half year period where it was really tough to get the, the completion for, oh my God. And I just thought, keep going, keep it alive, you know. But um, then we had that phenomenal story break on the front page of the New York Times. And boy, that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Well, I, I probably haven't seen that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what was that about? Well, you know, uh, the mainstream, you know, the New York Times hasn't been known for positive coverage of the phenomenon over the decades. But right. this was the first. Uh, this was the first time it was a very serious, sober look uh, at the phenomenon. That they talked about it. This secret Pentagon program that had been started by Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid back in 2007. Um, there was official evidence from the Navy uh, that was released. Um, That's right. I and, remember. Uh, and, and, and everything was validated. And, and uh, it was, you know, to, to people's amazement around the world, it was, it was revealed that there was a secret Pentagon UFO program studying the phenomenon um, since 2007. Of course, we all know in the community that, you know, there are programs like this have been going on since the ending of Project Blue Books. But but this was a sort of stamp of validation, uh, and uh, and that was just a boon, I think, for the whole uh, for the whole topic. I'm going to say, you know, James, um, it's about time more came out now instead of um, giving us a little bit of information now and then. Uh, we're not daft. A lot of people out there know what's happening. There's more people coming out now and saying, "I saw that ten years ago." They didn't say anything at that time because I get ridiculed. I'll give you an example of, of, of something that just happened to me recently. Uh, we, we were given the recommendation by our distribution company. And every time you get to the end of a film, 
you know, after several years of production, I mean, generally speaking, you're pretty much broke and exhausted. But uh, my distributor, my distributor on the recommendation, not mandatory, but recommended a Dolby surround mix because it's going to be released in theaters. Um, and that would just add to the whole experience to the audience. So I looked into it a couple months ago, and it was a very expensive process. I have to hire a sound engineer, and it was kind of a big deal. But I decided to to do it, and uh, and I reached out to a new investor, and I got the money. And the owner of the company, uh, who will remain nameless, but they were their eight-time Emmy Award-winning company. They do documentaries with James uh, James Cameron. They're very mainstream Hollywood, really high end. These guys are really good. And he said to me, when I was a child, I was 12, when I was a young boy, I was 12 years old. I was in, it was in Texas in the 60s. And uh, my best friend and I, they told me this really incredible encounter with a UFO. And they were running from this thing as it was coming down to land. And um, he's kept that quiet for decades because he was afraid of, being judged and laughed at. But when he saw the phenomenon, he said, wow, so I'm not alone. There are other people that have had similar accounts because we cover a lot of landing cases and close encounters of the third kind as well. And, um, and I just thought, well, how many people out there like this guy that have held this secret for all these decades for fear of, of ridicule? And um, yeah, it's just another example of... of have you, uh, you, you know, we talk about it. Have you had your own experiences then, James? I I have. I, 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 had, I had an experience when I was 20 years old with my girlfriend, Lisa Reinhardt. It was about midnight. We were lying in bed together. I was, gonna, I was heading to live in Paris for a, for a couple of years. We were spending our last couple of days together in, in California, Northern California. Lying in bed, it's around midnight. And we looked out. She actually looked out the window first and she said, what the bleep is that? And I looked out the window, and up probably, I don't know, about the height of a telephone pole, which would be, what, uh, 10 meters, maybe? Mm. Not 8, 9, 10 meters? Yeah. Was this egg-shaped light, probably the size of a, of a mini, a, the, the older minis. The, the oh, yeah. Ones. And it was just sort of hovering stationary, very silently and, and almost throbbing, like pulsing a little bit, just a little bit. And I looked at it and I just couldn't believe my eyes. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know what that thing is, but whatever it is, I get the feeling it knows we're looking at it. And she said, that's exactly what I feel too. Close the blinds. So I leapt out of bed and in my haste, I ripped the blinds right off the wall. So I'm fumbling around on the floor trying to put the blinds back up again. I finally get them up. And then we're clutching each other in bed for what seemed like maybe five or ten minutes. And she said, I wonder if it's still there. And I drew the blinds, and it was gone. Now, you'd think that – and then my sister came home, I think about a half an hour later, and we told her what happened. Then we went to sleep and woke up the next morning, never spoke of it again for 20 years. How strange is that? Never spoke of it again for 20 years. Didn't even tell my father who I was living with at the time the next morning at the breakfast table. Why on earth? I just forgot that it happened. In fact, the only time I started talking about it, I bumped into Lisa Reinhardt with her new, with, she had a husband and she had a daughter and 
we actually met on a beach in San, in San Diego out of the blue. And I said, Lisa, do you remember that encounter? And she said, oh, yeah. I said, well, what do you remember? And, of course, she recounted it exactly as I did. And that was it. Well, so that's good. Like, was... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's good, but she can recount it again. Yeah, you know, it was just funny. It was like you'd, you'd think that I would have woken up the next morning and said, oh, my gosh, you're not going to believe what we saw last night. In fact, I, I went to my sister and I said, Janine, did I? Do you remember that time? She said, oh, yeah. I said, what do you remember us saying? And Because honestly, if I hadn't had any witnesses there, if I hadn't told my sister what had happened when she came home a half an hour later, and if I hadn't had Lisa with me, I probably would have never talked about it ever again. You know, when you talk about some cases of the UFO, it usually runs in the family. Did your father ever say anything about seeing any strange things? Absolutely not. In fact, my father was so anti-UFO, he thought I was, he was my biggest fan when he died. But because, you know, he was one of those people that, you know, that Stanton Friedman would say, don't bother me with the evidence my mind is made up. That was my dad. Well, you get some people like that. You know, um, it wasn't long ago, but you was on um, one, I can't remember, I think it was on the History Channel, you were doing a series with some people. Mm. A documentary, I think it was. Yeah, I did. I've done a, I've done a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, it's funny, actually, because I used to get very excited at the idea of doing a TV show, and now... I don't want to do any TV shows. <laughs> it's because, you know, you're just, you have got no, you ultimately you have no control in the edit room and as the, as the, you know, the, as, as the way the, the content, the, the result of the, of what you do. And I, I just don't have any interest in doing that, but yes, I have done it. Some of the shows have been fun, entertaining. Other shows have been rather silly. Um, I doubt that I'll probably do any more unless it benefits me in a way that really helps you know, advance what I'm, what I'm doing personally with, you know, I'm gonna like say, I but the new film was out now, there must be some uh, really good sightings in that, in that film. I've got, look, I'll tell you right now and I'll send you, uh, I'll send you a secured link in March. If you remind me to do so. Yeah. It has well, to come from the distributor, but, but I can assure you that this film uh, has the most compelling cases I've ever seen in any movie ever. Have you got some new evidence that's come out as well? We have, we have, we have new, we have yeah. new evidence. We have, uh, we're, we, yes, yes. New witnesses as well, probably, haven't you? New, wet, new witnesses, new evidence, new, uh, Material on older cases. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. You know, we cover the Kenneth Arnold. Well, if you're going to do an historical perspective on the topic, because again, I'm, as I've said earlier, you know, you you have to assume that your your new audience is not going to have a lot of information on 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 the history of the phenomenon. I had to do it, but I didn't want to bore the the, the you know the, the the people that are familiar with the topic well. So we cover Kenneth Arnold. We went and we found went. Kenneth Arnold's daughter. We went and found Kenneth, Kenneth Arnold's daughter, Kim, who had kept all the correspondence between him and the Air Force from 1947. 
Well, we reveal that in the movie, the, the, some photographs that they had shared with him that they had personally made of a similar craft that, that Kenneth Arnold had seen. It was photographed, I think, in Arizona like a week or two later. Um, but in any case, so the 52 sighting, we have, for the first time, we have um, an interview that was done from Project Sign or, or, or Oral Sign, uh, Tom Tulian, who'd shot an interview with uh, Al Chop who was in the radar room that night, 1952. Right. Phenomenal. The Nash and Fortenberry. You remember the Nash and Fortenberry case? It's a, a yeah, I do. Yeah. Capitol building being buzzed. We've got an interview with Nash. No one's ever seen that. Um, it's unbelievable. It really brings that life, it brings that case to life. Uh, and, and, I was going to say it does because it, it fetches more proof, doesn't it? It really brings it to life. Like, all the historians, including Richard Dolan and, and, and Jacques Vallée, are like, where did you find that? We've got testimonies from James McDonald on camera in color. We've got testimony from uh, Edward Condon on, in color on camera. We've got the 1978 United Nations event that Lee Spiegel put on. We've got the full event in color on camera in the movie. Obviously, we edit it because it's long, but that presentation, no one's ever seen that before. No one, not even the people that were there. So we, we, do, we do do an historical perspective, but we have uh, never before seen archival footage that will leave even the most um, you know, trained historians gobsmacked. I, I promise you. But that's a credit to you. Well, we, just, we had a budget and we had a crew and we went after it and found it. It was amazing. So that's good, but you, um, you know, there's many people gone out there and tried to do documentaries, and um, I'm not saying they fell at short order because um, they haven't got the proper witnesses, or it's same. Um, I only talked about this not long ago. There's not much stuff out at the moment. It always seems to be gone from years ago, and it's the same old routine. Yours is something entirely different. Well, we, we start we start back in 47, which has been done a million times, but we put it new. We have new material, new evidence, new testimony, new documents, never before seen documents. I guarantee it. And then we do modern day as well. We do the New York Times. We interview people that were involved in the New York Times article. We interview Harry Reid, who started the ATIP program, the secret UFO program at the Pentagon. You know, um, we believe it or not, we go up. We, we actually we, we address Roswell from the Clinton administration because... I was going to say, I was gonna, I was going to ask you about Roswell. Did you get some yeah, new well, information and new witnesses? We, what we did was, uh, Jacques Vallée, you know, would say in the edit room with us, just the facts, ma'am. So what we did was, as we went after the just testimony from the people who were there okay irrefutable people that were there nothing controversial at all so we found this archival jesse marcel interview where they take him out to the crash site back in the 70s really rare really rare we got that we got an interview uh we have all the uh, really high-res photographs of the press conference beautiful photographs and then there was Jesse Marcel, Major General Roger Ramey, and DuBose. Well, we have on camera with DuBose, on camera with Jesse Marcel, 
Um, and then we interview the governor of New Mexico who went after it. We interview John Podesta during the Clinton administration with pressure from Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller, which we have all those documents. They went after Roswell. We, we touch on Roswell and then we do a brief snapshot of just the facts. And it's it, funny enough, we had a screening of about 120 people, a private screening. And to my amazement, even though Roswell has been beaten to death, uh, half the audience said, that was my favorite section of the movie, that Roswell. Wow. And I thought, really? <laughs> my God. So, yeah, we do address Roswell. But as Jacques would say, just the facts, ma'am. Well, that's good, isn't it? I think so. You know, because um, over the years it's been Roswell this, Roswell that. Um, did, did you ever cover Area 51 then? No, don't touch it. I think there's been enough said of that. Yeah, no, don't touch it. Don't touch that. Don't touch Bob Lazar. No. Uh-uh. That's good. Look, we do, like we're it. dealing with... We're, here's, here's the crazy part. Think about this for a Think about this for a moment. This is the challenge that, that was facing us with this film. We would often say in the studio, where are we? We're on the road to Rua. The road to Rua. Rua is the 1994 uh, landing case that Dr. John Mack, Harvard psychiatrist, had flown out to Africa right after it happened in 1994 and documented right. the school children, aerial school. Well, I know that when I heard about that case back in the 90s, I didn't believe it. In fact, I didn't believe it to the point where when I heard about it, I didn't even ask any further questions. I just, just, no, yeah, that didn't happen. There's no way a landing in broad daylight with nearly 100 witnesses uh, and the occupants got out and interacted telepathically with these witnesses that the whole world doesn't know about it. No way. So I knew that if that was my attitude, the guy that was making a film on the topic of UFOs didn't believe it, then certainly the general public wasn't going to buy it. So the whole film is kind of preparation for the landing case and the close encounter of the third kind case in Africa. So, for the last several years, we'd say in the edit room, where are we going, guys? We're going, we're on the road to Rua. So we need to build our case. We're going to keep it entertaining, of course, but build yeah. our case on the likelihood. And if we can have the audience walk out of that theater, believing that that case might have just happened, then we've done our job. And I'd say unequivocally, we've done our job. Hey, I'm sure you have as well, you know. Hey, you know, when you first started out, did you thought, oh, here we go again. It's going to be an hard graft, you know. We've got to keep asking for money and projects. And, you know, how did you feel at that time then when you first started out doing making the film? I was very excited the first two years. Um, and then there started to be some uh, clash with, uh, in terms of direction, the, the direction that the film was heading. And we, we ended up part, I ended up parting ways with partners because I really wanted to 
turn over some new stones. I wanted to find some new evidence. I wanted to adhere to a very high level of production just because I've failed in the past to get the kind of distribution that I've wanted on the topic. And um, so there were some low points, I'd say, for about two years. Uh, but we, we, uh, we stayed focused. We, we, uh, we were very diligent. We got a level of cooperation with people like of the likes of George Knapp and Jacques Vallée uh, and a handful of others that really helped accomplish that goal. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I can't to, to tell you that I was pleased with the outcome of the film would be an understatement. Uh, it uh, really is. James, what uh, other big cases have you dealt with uh, in the film? Uh, we deal with Socorro quite extensively. The 1964 Close Encounter of the Third Kind with police officer Lonnie Zamora that took place on April 24th, 1964 in Socorro, New Mexico. Right, yeah. I remember that one. I went, I went to Socorro probably 20 times over a period of five years. I got to know his wife, his daughter, his son Michael, his co-workers, the local police, the old sheriff. I went to the National Archives with um, the gentleman who wrote the book on it, uh, Socorro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry, Ray Stanford. And we found never-before-seen documents at the National Archives, not microfilm, original documents, all of which we scanned with a flatbed scanner. Um, we really... And then we got uh, Jacques Vallée, who was with Heineck when the call came in of that landing. And so Heineck was intimately involved with that case with Heineck... With, Sorry, Jacques was, knew everything mm. that was going on behind the scenes. So Jacques really helped us put that whole piece together. That was a probably one of the most significant landing cases in modern U.S. history. I'm and we say, really it, dug our... It must have been. So you found some really interesting facts about that landing and everything then. You know, it wasn't just the data and the, all the evidence that was left behind at the scene, that, that in itself is phenomenal. But the impact that this sighting had had on, on the, the police officer, his relationship with his wife, you know, and she said he was never the same. So we touch on the human, the human element in, in the film as well. And we do that extensively throughout, particularly at the end, the impact that that event has had on the students at, in Ruiz, Zimbabwe, at the aerial school was profound and they were sort of left to their own devices those children after the after the uh the the the, the encounter and um and we touch on that quite a bit so it's more than just you know banging the audience over the head with case after case and evidence it's actually the impact that's had on 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 the uh experiencer did you do anything on the phoenix lights then we not exactly, but we did throw in a nice little outtake from Governor Fife Symington about the case and the impact it had on him when he saw it. And, uh, yes, yeah, so we, we touch on that at the end credits. It's a very fun outtake. We have images from that event. We also touch on the 1976 encounter over Tehran 
with Parviz Jafari, the general. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Great case. Great case. I had interviewed him back in 2007 when he came out to the National Press Club event that we did with Elizabeth Kane. And um, it was something that he had said on camera that I overlooked when I was producing I Know What I Saw. And that was he was reflecting on the incident, and he said on camera, it's in the, it's in the end of the film, boy, you know, I later had thought, why did I try to shoot at it? I should have tried to communicate with it. And I thought, wow, what a what a statement that is. This man was reflecting back on a missed opportunity that instead of engaging, you know, uh, uh, hostility to 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 reach out and try to communicate with them. It was a fascinating thing for him to say. But anyway, we we have that in there. Did you do anything with uh, um, Betty and Barney? Is it ill? Not exactly. We do show a photograph of um, Jacques with Betty and Barney Hill in New Hampshire in 1965. Right. So the audience will look at that and probably say, what's that case about? And look into it. We don't go into it in detail. We just, we mention it. Very subtle, but it's it, yeah. The case is in the movie, but we don't go into it. Right. Hey, um, tell us a little bit more about do any other cases. What might be interesting to what's what's been out before, but you found more new evidence. Um. Do you remember a f- fascinating case? It was uh, Popeye New Guinea, nineteen fifty-eight, with Father Gill. Yeah, I vaguely remember that, yes. Well, we found there was only one copy left in the world, according to the guy that we, we found that, that was involved in the in the making of this documentary in the 70s. And um, i trying to remember his name. But in any case, we found an interview with Father Gill in the 70s on that encounter. Uh, there was a close encounter in Papua New Guinea in 1958. And that, that was... That was really cool because he actually uh, he actually waved to the occupants, tried to get them to land, and they waved back. Quite remarkable. That is remarkable. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, and your audience, your listeners might be going, yeah, sure, right, whatever. But when you see the testimony from this guy and you know the case, that happened. Did you do anything uh, from the UK at all? Yeah, well, we, we uh, in, a, in a different way, we cover the Bentwaters, but, but differently. It's new. It's in an, in an angle that hadn't, I certainly hadn't touched on before. Um, through Halt at the National Press Club, talking about the beams of light shooting down into the sensitive weapon storage area. But we do go over that case um uh you know building up to his well, he recounts it at the national press club with robert that robert hastings event that he did at the national press club in 2010 right yeah i'm, I'm so i i do a little bit about uh rendlesham and all that business well what you know yeah there was a landing and you had uh a number of airmen walk up to the landed craft um, John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, 
uh, Edward Cabansag, but he didn't actually walk up the craft. He was sort of in between the craft and the radio yeah. tower. But in any case, yes, we mentioned that briefly, but then we go into the angle of um, they were shooting beams of light down into the weapon storage area. So we, we focus more on that. So but we do touch on I, that case in England. I was going to say, because I think that's a big, important subject, that, isn't it? Well, you know, I wasn't going to touch it. Not that I made a conscious decision not to, but I just didn't wasn't really on my radar. But when we got an interview with Senator Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, which was a really big deal, I asked him in closing, what did you guys uncover? What was some, more, some of the more fascinating aspects of the phenomenon? And he said, the fact they were shutting our missiles down, our nuclear our if the president had called the launch, he couldn't have done it. And I thought, wow, okay, hold on a second here. And so we decided to create uh, a, a section in the movie. We contacted Robert Hastings, and he made all of his research for decades, all the research he's ever done, available for the film. So we extracted about seven really compelling material and assembled a nice little segment in the film which deals with that aspect. Pretty cool. I'm going to say it is pretty cool because that's happened quite a few times around the world at different places like that, aren't it? Where they've gone down and and they've set alarms off. Yes, uh, no, it's it's really it's back to back testimony from gentlemen with high security clearances that were responsible for uh, the security of of nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, we cover cases all over the United States, in England, in Russia. Um, incredibly compelling testimony. Really, really solid testimony. I bet you just looking down at you is so proud of you. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I remember my dad saying to me, when I failed... With I know what I saw, I tried to get. I don't know if your if your audience has watched that film. It's a good it's a good little film. I'm proud of it. But I tried to get a theatrical and I didn't do it. And I got very close. And I was actually honestly I was kind of a little bit depressed when I finished the film. We sold it and everybody made their money back and yada yada yada. But I wasn't very happy. And I remember my dad saying, "Son, like what's going on?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, I really wanted to get a theater release and da da da." And he goes, "Well, well yeah, you didn't, but but look at what you did do." And then he said, you know, you only have to hit it once in your industry, big. Uh, and, uh, and I'm hoping that, that's the, that, that this is that time. I'm sure it's going to be as well. But you've traveled all over the world, haven't you? We spent a month in Australia. We spent several weeks in Africa. We spent a month and a half in China. Um, we went to South America four times, and then all across the United States. How did you How did you find Australia? Oh, that Westall case from 1966 is absolutely phenomenal. That's probably one of my best cases. Not these, tell, ones, but right there. Right there. Oh, tell us a little bit about the case in. The one what you you were doing in Australia. So it was a school landing case, 1966, just outside Melbourne. It was a suburb of Melbourne. 
Right. Westall, I think it was Westall Primary School. They were roughly, it was a morning break, probably around, I don't know, 10, 10.30 a.m. And uh, they were somewhere between three and 400 students outside. Some children and some eyewitness reports, multiple UFOs. Some were just one UFO that darted about so quickly in the sky that it looked like multiple. But again, it was at least one, possibly more. Uh, these objects, this, this disc-shaped craft eventually landed. Um, behind a, 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 a little grove of trees in an open field. And some of the students ran over to that landing site and got within, uh, I don't know, six to 10 meters or less. That's right. I remember it now. Yeah. Yeah. Of this so what did you find up. out, James, about, about, about it? Did you, um, did you manage to interview anybody? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. I, 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 uh, I had the help of... Uh, James, a gentleman, James Rigney, Shane Ryan, and a whole slew of other researchers in Australia that were couldn't have been more helpful. And uh, I eventually managed to land an interview for the first time in 50 years with the science teacher who was uh, a witness, uh, why he hadn't come forward, what had happened, what he'd seen, um, all revealed for the first time ever. Then there was another gentleman who is an engineer a couple of days earlier who took a photograph of a flying saucer that was over his house, um, just 17 kilometers away from, from Westall. We got his story. We got his photograph for the first time talking about it on camera. Um, in both events, military uh, showed up at their homes, pressured them significantly pressured the science teacher to the point where he went he went silent for 50 years the other gentleman who was an engineer was from a very prominent family he didn't like go public in a big way but he refused to hand over his photograph to the to the to the military he kept it um but he felt that it was anybody else i'm sorry that was good of him then to keep it yeah he kept it yeah he kept it he had the uh it was a polaroid and I got to and actually got hold to it in my hand. hand. It's featured in the movie. Oh, I bet that was. I bet you felt really good then, didn't you? You know, it's one of those moments where, you know, that sound the computer makes when you boot it up and it goes, oh, and it's like a little halo. You know, yeah. it was that moment. You know, when yeah. you've got those moments, there are not that many of them in production, but there are. Those moments happen, and they're beautiful when they do. And you think, my, that was good. That is the best. Oh, no but that, you know, but You know, being out there for so long as well, you know, and, you, and you, other places around the world, you went to China, you were saying. Yeah, we spent, I would say, probably a month and a half in China. So what case did you do in China? We didn't. I learned about a number of cases. There was a landing case in China, commonly called the Meng Zhao Gua case. And that was a landing with a same, similar message in 1994 that happened in Africa, which is incredible. Um, I touched on that case a little bit, but I didn't go into any great depth. 
it was more of just going around the countryside, meeting with a few witnesses, meeting with researchers, meeting with military. And um, it seemed more like, uh, you know, uh, establishing a long-term relationship for an exchange of information. Um, I was going to say, did you find it quite hard out there then to get information? I was amazed at the level of cooperation. And I don't quote me on this, but there's somewhere in the millions amount of research, re, UFO researchers in China. And the research, research organization that I was traveling around in China with was a UFO. It was a government-sponsored, approved organization to investigate UFOs. And we actually had a, a general in uniform going around with us, giving me unprecedented access and uh, ability to film even fly my drone in China, which is like absolutely forbidden. But we had, we had, permission. oh yeah, no, you go to jail. Yeah, we had permission. He would just, he just said, go ahead and fly it. And he would go everywhere with us and just do whatever you need to do. It was, it was ex- amazing. I'm very, it was. And, and you went, you're saying you went to Africa. I went to Africa, yeah, because I wanted to go to the school, the aerial school. I wanted to meet the teachers. I wanted to go to the landing site. You know, it's all part of the process, right? Yeah. And what what did you find out? I found out, you know, you never know what you're going to get, but I found out that the school teacher, now the headmistress, Judy Bates, had lied because she was fear she was she was worried about her career mm-hmm. and any that's any understandable yep that's totally understandable and she went on camera unexpectedly not far away from the landing site you got to kind of have to read between the lines of what she says but she says this is what happened you can believe it or you could not believe it and i kept quiet for my own personal reasons, you know, kind of thing. But it's very powerful. It's actually towards the end of the movie. Oh, is it? Yeah, I cover that case towards... The end of the movie. I cover that case towards the end of the film just because, again, I don't expect the average viewer to believe that that event actually occurred. you got to do some background before you present that case. Right. We show Westall, the, 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 the Australian landing case, quite uh, 20 minutes into the movie, you know, yeah. 25 yeah. minutes into the movie, 20 minutes into the movie, yeah. So that's a major mass sighting in broad daylight with a lot of witnesses on camera today, a, a photograph of what is very likely the same object a couple of days earlier, just 17 kilometers away. Then we go into the landing at, at Socorro. And another uh, landing cases in 57 in Texas. That was another wave. Um, and a whole slew of other cases and evidence and testimony. So by the time you get to uh, Africa, you're pretty well primed to knowing that an event like this uh, has happened in the past. Um, and and you, you, you're just that much more ready to 
to believe that it that it occurred the way the witnesses say it did. How do you see yourself doing things more now? Do you want to um, do another documentary once this is aired? Oh God! Have you I got mean, more? Honestly, mater- have you got more material for the next one? I have, or? I have seventeen unused terabytes of material that I gathered. Seventeen oh, terabytes. Terabytes. Yeah, that so I think I might do it. A lot. I might do it. I might do it. Uh, eight to ten hour miniseries, but honestly, I'm way too exhausted to, to even consider it right now. But that that will happen. I just don't know when. I'm going to say you must be absolutely shattered. I, I, Pe- I people I, don't I, realize I, what goes into doing the documentary. People just think, this, well, you do this, you do a bit of that, you put that together, but. It's planning. It's I, I, I don't say this lightly, but there was a moment that I thought I was dying. And I checked myself into the hospital. I had a therapist. I couldn't walk. And it was a combination of when you're doing a project of this magnitude, you have to pace yourself. You push hard. It's like when you run a long marathon, you got to pace yourself. Well, I often would push too hard, and you can't sustain that level of push. You know, you have you think to remind yourself. You know, Jim, do you think it's stress as well? Well, that's what it. I was going to say. Is that's what I was going to say? Is it's not just the physical aspect of production, traveling and editing and shooting and writing and all that. It's the pressure of the documentary on your shoulders. And it's 24-7. It, you never shut it off. That monkey is on your back for the better part of seven years. And that's exhausting. You go to sleep worrying about how you're going to pull it off. You wake up in the morning worrying about how you're going to pull it off. Every down to you know begging for more money, to trying to get an interview, there's a story behind every single piece of footage, interview that we obtained, Travel, I'm not kidding you when I tell you I can give an hour documentary on every interview. I mean, the the negotiations that went down with getting Senator Harry Reid, and thank you, George Knapp, by the way, that was months of negotiations. And it almost fell apart five minutes before we were were to go on camera. I went after after Podesta for 10 years before I finally got an interview. Ten years. Ten years. It's unbelievable, that, isn't it? I'm, Absolutely I'm unbelievable. Well, it's the truth. I know. So, you know. You do you really it, like you say, you're pushing yourself to the next level every time, aren't you? I don't know how else to do it. I really don't. I mean, I you know, I'd like to think that it'll be easier this time because if this film succeeds as it's looking like it will uh, my name will be that much more out there and it might be easier for me to obtain high level uh, interviews because they'll know that I'm not out there to you know tongue in cheek and, and ridicule the whole thing and, and that they, they could be their, their story could be trusted with me but that takes time to develop that reputation it takes time to get yes, out there also you think just because I've got like you know four films under my belt 
uh, and that you know, it would, it would be that much easier to raise money. But it, surprisingly enough, half the time it's not. <laughs> I'm I hoping do, that will change. I'm enough. going to say, James. How 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 do you get your finances together? What oh, what makes a documentary, and uh, uh, who funds it? Because a lot of people out there, can you just tell the listeners how you go about funding it, you know, trying to get money from people? Well, well, the first part, usually the first year is the hardest because it's just a pie in the sky idea. You know, and people doubt those ideas significantly. Once you start collecting material and, and, and um, uh, you know, and, and, and having enough uh, traction on the project, it gets a little easier. I just had to borrow another 50000 for the sound engineer, which I've never in my life spent that much money getting a sound mix. I mean, it <laughs> seems insane. That but that's half of what it would normally cost. Well, it's going to well, be in theaters, so, you know, what are you going to do? It takes six weeks of sound engineer. But point being was it was easier for me to borrow that because we had a distribution deal already in place, and the film was pretty much done. So I could go to a guy and say, look, mate, I've got a distribution deal. This is the film. It's pretty much done. I need 50 grand. And it's like, hey, you know what? That seems like a fairly safe investment. I'll give him a, a flat rate of return on his money. And that was fairly, it wasn't that difficult. Now, a couple of years ago, had that article not broke on the front page of the New York Times, I might have, yeah, I mean, I'll get it done every time anyway, but I, it would have been a lot harder. Once that story broke, um, it was easier for me to raise money because we were four years into production when that story broke. On the, you remember that story, right? Yeah, I do. I remember it now, James. Yeah, yeah. That was, it, uh, that, that, it opened that, a few people's eyes. That did. It catapulted the topic into mainstream, and it was exactly what we needed. That's so true. It needed oh, yeah. something no, that, like that to, to get the ball rolling a little bit more. Yeah. Oh, no. I, well, look, I'm, I'm telling you right now, mark my words, this film is going to be a game changer. And it's not just the fact that we have accomplished our goal and what we, just, we, what we set out to create, but we actually have a distribution deal that's just about unheard of. I mean, we really lucked out. I mean, we worked very hard, very, very hard, but we also lucked out. I mean, getting a, a big-time theatrical release across the United States, I mean, you I want to talk word of mouth, and it's a stamp of legitimacy on the topic that, uh, as, far as, I, as far as I know, hasn't happened before. When, when does the film come out, then? September. In September, and it's going to be mainstream um, through all the cinemas. They're going to be playing the trailer, the trailer in theaters in July. Brilliant. So people that go out to theaters are going to see the trailer. Which I, Look, the trailer is wham, bam, flashy, just rock and roll. I mean, it really... That was a lot of work. It was a team of around 12 people, a, a mini orchestra, uh, and, and I think about four months of editing and writing. 
And uh, a lot of times a movie trailer, you know, is really compelling and exciting. And then it, the film doesn't deliver. Well, that's not the case with this one. We have a very exciting, powerful trailer. Yeah, it's good. More... I've seen it. I've seen the some trailer. The, some of the more... It's very, the more... very, very good. And uh, and to look at it as well, you can feel it. The um, It's telling us a little bit of a story as it's coming on. Um, so you know that the film is going to be as good as the trailer. Well, you know, I've seen. I, I try not to read the comments in the in the in the YouTube sites and all this stuff, but you can't help yourself sometimes. And I'm like, oh, here we go, the same old rehashed garbage. You know, I've seen this a million yeah. times. I'm like, yeah. you don't know what you're talking. Just wait. Now, are there is there familiar material? Absolutely, no question about it. But it'll be the pieces of the puzzle are put together in a way that's never been done. This was not a film solely for the UFO community. This was, this film was intended to transcend that genre, that to get to a mainstream audience. And that's what our goal was not to preach to the proverbial choir. And I, and I think we were, we were successful in doing that. And to even the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, accomplished historians on the topic, I guarantee you, you're going to see stuff you've never seen before. Jacques Vallée and Lee Spiegel and, and, and Richard Dolan had all agreed, like, oh, my God, where did you find this stuff? This is amazing. I've yeah, but it's good that people it. talk about that like Richard does. I know yeah, Richard yeah. Dolan. It's nice, but he's come out and think, you know, how did you get that information? We've been trying for years. Yeah, no, yeah. no. Richard was amazing. Everybody, even Jacques, was like, "Where did you find this stuff?" You know, we we had the resources and we had the the manpower um, to go after this stuff, and 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 we were incredibly successful. Yeah, I. Oh. Well, I'm so pleased for you. I, I am. I am so pleased. Um, but you, you know, this is going to come out in September. It's going to blow people's minds away. So you know. Where can people find you if they need to give you any information about anything, sightings or wherever? We have a website. You can also view the trailer on the website. And it's www.thephenomenonfilm.com. Thephenomenonfilm.com. Right. Because I'm sure there's got a few people listening to the show and think, God, you know, I've seen something I could do. I could do with telling him this information, you know, because, you know, there's lots of people, like you were saying before, who seen something a long time ago and thought, I dare say no, because of this. And But it's neat. Once this film comes out, it, a lot of people might start to delivering more stories. Well, I think of I think of the uh, the likelihood that more government and military uh, will be willing to put their necks out a little bit and come forward, and I I I I, I see that happening with this because we've got a lot of high level uh, household names appearing in this film. I mean, right down to uh, Peter Coyote narrating. You know, Peter Coyote is a pretty pretty well known guy. He's a very familiar yeah. voice, and we're incredibly lucky to get him a second time. And you know, to have a mainstream guy 
narrate a film on UFOs, that's kind of a big deal, especially on a film on UFOs that deals with close encounters of the third kind, because that's a slippery slope. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're just about nearly run out of time. You know, James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Believe it or not, I'm in the car driving to Los Angeles for the final mix uh, on the film. Oh, thank you. So, you know, I know you said you were going to a six hour drive. You know, it's 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 good of you to to come on the show and talk oh, about well, about the film and when it's going to come out. So everybody will be looking out for it. I'm going to send you a private link. You have to remind me because I'm quite busy these days. Yes. I'm going to send you a private link at the sometime in March. You can watch it, and then you can have me back on again, and we can have another chat. Yes, yeah, that'd be absolutely fantastic, James. Yes, I will do. I'll remind you in March sometime. It's my birthday in March, so that'd be quite good. Fantastic. Well, you take care. Look after yourself and all the best for the future. Right, the same to you, and thanks again for having me on. And uh, thanks to your to your listeners. I, I hope you enjoyed the show. And I'll send you the archives of the show as well when we wrote Thank it you up. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Safe Bye-bye. journey. Bye-bye.